Previously on Heavy Metal Historian, we commenced an in-depth examination of the significance of album cover art on the genre of heavy metal. We close our journey through album art with another different kind of episode in which we consider 20 of the most recognizable metal album covers of all time. Many will agree, and many will not, but we run through a discussion of some of the most iconic cover designs by some of the biggest heavy metal bands in history. Welcome to episode 55, and I'm Greg Davies, your heavy metal historian. Over the last few episodes, we explored the historic influence on the development of album covers and how the art form evolved within the world of heavy metal. After exploring the unique elements of heavy metal album covers, we also explored the subject thoroughly with fantastic artist Felipe Machado Franco, who has worked with the likes of Blind Guardian and Iron Savior. Now, we conclude our in-depth study of heavy metal album cover art by asking one simple question. Which album covers in the history of heavy metal have become the most iconic? This is a good query, and not just for the sake of making a boring list. Individual album releases are often a benchmark or a sign that the band is about to explode into success, or maybe emblematic of a specific point in history. Other releases may signify a change in direction for a band or the scene in general, or perhaps even mark a specific point in time. No matter the basis, these releases are often seen as some of the most influential work on the future metal music and album cover art to come. For the purpose of this episode, I have limited the number to 20 albums. Each album must be from a different band. In determining the albums and bands to be featured here, I've considered the social influence of their release, the artistic detail or a deliberate lack thereof, the success of the specific album, and also how the album is viewed now after some time. That being said, this is not a best of list. Some of the albums included here are not the best examples of stunning album art, but have come to symbolize a major moment for that group or the metal scene overall. In spite of all the considerations, I'm sure that many listening will disagree strenuously with many of my choices, and that's okay. That is what makes the metal scene great, our ever-ongoing debates on what is worthy to be considered the best in metal, or even certainly what is worthy to be considered metal to begin with. That said, I welcome your reactions, thoughts, opinions, insults, and criticisms. I would love to hear your thoughts. The following 20 album covers are presented in no particular order, and to begin with, we start with Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses.
Guns N' Roses' confident debut into the world of heavy metal musically was a revival of some older blues and hard rock sentiments, coupled with the final years of the glam metal scene. The early album cover design, focusing on a robotic rapist and its partially naked female victim, was met with stern refusal from the record label. Painted by Robert Williams, the intention was to shock. But also, the artwork abstractly explored some elements of entering LA for the first time, which Axl Rose would later detail in the controversial song One in a Million from the follow-up album GNR Lies. The rejection from the record company, as it turns out, was a blessing in disguise for Guns N' Roses. Replacing the cover with the skull and cross tattoo design turned out to be a much better enduring decision for the band. The release was coupled with the smash success of songs like Sweet Child of Mine, Paradise City and Welcome to the Jungle. Devised by Bill White Jr., redrawn by Andy Engel and painted by Robert Williams, the new album cover design would prove to eventually make Appetite for Destruction to turn out to be one of the most recognised metal covers of all time. And incidentally, the same could be said for Judas Priest's 1980 record entitled British Steel. Judas Priest rose to success in the United Kingdom during the 1970s and likewise would later be embraced into the subsequent new wave of British heavy metal movement. At this point in their career, the group was beginning to look towards how to progress forward into the imminent decade. For Priest, the band had established a creative relationship with album cover artist Rose Lorsabo with techniques that would incorporate both photography and painting elements. And with 1980s British Steel, the group had honed a track listing comprising of some of their most solid work to date. Indeed, in retrospect, they had some of the most recognisable and iconic songs released from British Steel, which is part of the reason why the cover is so recognised. Accompanying the fact that the design is simple and almost minimalist, the metaphorical exploration of metal and steel by merging it with the icon of a razor blade sealed the deal. For many fans at the time, the album cover art was an instant classic, and who are we to argue? Looking back now, they were totally correct. 
Meanwhile, trailing the steps of bands like Judas Priest came the groups who would encompass the majority of the Nawaba movement, and primary among these outfits, leading the charge into a new decade of amazing metal work, was Iron Maiden. Kicking off their professional recording career with their self-titled record, Iron Maiden coupled with manager Ron Smallwood decided on an approach to their album art that would set the group apart from other acts. The outfit was going to be competing with the popification of punk as well as the dominance of disco in America. As a result, Smallwood suggested the group establish a specific art style, comparable to how the progressive rock band Yes had developed with Roger Dean. Working together with artist Derek Riggs, the collective collaboration focused on refining a character based upon a stage prop Maiden was using for a smoke machine effect. Secured up on stage was a head from which the smoke would pump out. The group had laughingly referred to the head as Eddie the Ed. From their collaboration, Riggs developed a zombified monstrosity of a character which suited not only the band, the music and their debut release, but would set the standard for their future albums. Not only would the band grow and change, but so would their character, their mascot, now known as Eddie D. Ed. Maiden's first album signifies the first moment in pop culture where people recognized and noticed the appearance of a heavy metal mascot, and their impact would have lasting stimulus on the genre, right up to today, and indeed, undoubtedly, into the future. Later, the work of the Irons, and in conjunction with other groups erupting from the new wave of British heavy metal, would have an incredible influence on the rise of new splinters in heavy metal, the creation of new subgenres, including the first wave of black metal. Over in Denmark, early black metal outfit Merciful Fate, fronted by King Diamond, would assert important steps into the future of metal, especially with their album Don't Break the Oath.
establishing themselves as a darker and more demonic impact on the development of heavy metal, Merciful Fate delivered the logical response to the likes of groups such as Venom, with their debut release, Melissa. With King Diamond bringing back the makeup rudiments of shock rock, the band's music would quickly become heavily influential on future thrash, speed, death, and black metal artists. Nonetheless, it was with the release of 1984's Don't Break the Oath, with which Merciful Fate doubled down on their emphasis of Satanism, devil worship, and a tales of demons. Consumed in flames, somewhere in hell, Thomas Holm points a demonic horned figure emerging from the fire, pointing at the viewer. This character, is it the devil? Or is it one of his minions? It mattered not because the artwork was coupled with songs such as A Dangerous Meeting, Desecration of Souls, Welcome Princess of Hell, and Come to the Sabbath. Undeniably, Merciful Fate's Don't Break the Oath establishes with a firm footing that the representation of the devil and of demonic horrors was only just beginning. It would later be imitated by thrash metal bands, death metal bands, and black metal bands. On the other side of the coin, however, the earlier releases of Deep Purple, Rainbow, and Ronnie James Dio would bring forth the rise in the development of a different scene that would appear much later, power metal. And nobody exemplifies contemporary power metal more than Blind Guardian. Though their first five albums brought them success in Europe, it was their concept album based on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion that catapulted them into being recognised internationally. Many groups would explore the work of Tolkien in a wide range of songs, albums and artworks. And Blind Guardian were not the first to do this, but they were the first to take on such a challenging adaptation. The novel The Silmarillion was published posthumously and is compacted and dense with an extreme amount of detail focusing on the early histories of Middle-earth, making it a very challenging read. Yet, before filmmaker Peter Jackson would attempt to bring Tolkien's vision to life in a live-action trilogy, Blind Guardian's contribution would be an in-depth study of the tales of the years of Middle-earth before the events of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. 
The cover art represents the elf Luthien dancing in front of Morgoth, the original Dark Lord of the world, who would move on to train and mentor his Lieutenant Sauron, the same individual who would betray him and later create the One Ring. Combining the iconic images of the scene with the music of Blind Guardian was a perfect marriage. Legendary artist Andreas Marshall was the master behind the album cover and the partnership with Blind Guardian represented an important turning point in their mutual careers, with Nightfall being the band's first album to be released in the United States. Nevertheless, while this album would be a turning point for Blind Guardian, nearly a decade earlier another group would face a similar turning point, this time however using dark subjects and controversy that would assert an affirm history for the group, considered their seminal release Thrash Outfit Slayer would bring forth an album that would stand the test of time, Rain in Blood. Slayer have been no stranger to controversy, but their first major encounter with negative reactions was with the release of Rain in Blood in 1986. Filled with instant classics such as Jesus Saves, Angel of Death and more, the band met criticism from many of the lyrics on the album. Still, Slayer faced controversy before the album was even released, with Def Jam's distributor, Columbia Records, refusing to release the album because of the cover art. The grim artwork by Larry Carroll shows a Baphomet-style devil on a throne, ruling in presumably hell. The floors and the seas beneath him are bloodied as the great devil rules over his dominion, carried by religious and iconography-style characters. While abstract and surreal in some respects, the cover has become the most distinguishable in the entire Slayer catalogue and represents the moment they set a solid foundation from which to fully evolve. Much later, the record was released by Geffen Records, although the controversy surrounding the art and lyrical content saw the distributor refuse to list Rain in Blood on their public release schedule. In spite of this, Rain in Blood has lasted the test of time, becoming a highly regarded album among metal fans across the planet. It is frequently ranked among polls and lists online as one of the greatest metal releases and just as significantly as having one of the best album covers of all time. Similarly, one of Slayer's influences from the 1970s would also find a major turning point with one of their releases, uniquely a live album. 
It would be 1975's Kiss Alive that would push the makeup-clad shock rock outfit into international stardom. But it was truly 1976's studio follow-up, Destroyer, that would see the band plant their feet and present to the world that they were not going away. KISS developed a loyal following in their home of New York City and also in Detroit after which the song about the rock city was named. Despite their dedicated following, the group struggled to gain success until they were starting to get noticed because of the song Rock and Roll All Night from the album Dress to Kill. But then again the band's reputation as a live experience in concert preceded them. The genius idea to release a live album in the form of a live pushed them into major success. However, it was their follow-up studio release that would cement them into the history of metal as one of the most influential bands of all time. Destroyer, complete with classic songs such as Detroit Rock City and God of Thunder, was complemented with album art by Ken Kelly. Nephew of famous fantasy artist Frank Frazetta, who he studied under, Kelly's cover depicts a burning wasteland, an apocalyptic scene. In the foreground, the focal points of the four members of KISS, appearing powerful and victorious. Whereas the music was a representation of KISS's willingness to explore beyond their boundaries of hard rock, the cover was an indication of what was to come. KISS was about to shift from being a solid underground heavy band utilising shock rock theatrics into being perceived as superheroes and larger than life. The vibe and aura founded by both the album and Ken Kelly's artwork would be of incredible influence on the band's future career decisions. From clever and solid ideas such as the two KISS comics published by Marvel Comics to the misguided and almost embarrassing decision to film the movie KISS Meets the Phantom of the Park. Then again Destroyer represents a major transition point for KISS as well for the metal scene during the 70s. Turning points in the career of a rock or metal band are often represented strongly by the visual representation of their albums especially when looking back on history in retrospect. But what about releases that represented a massive turning point in the entire scene of heavy metal? No album is more representative of this than Nirvana's Nevermind. 
Of all the changes in trends in music and hard music, nothing was more earth-shattering than the death of glam metal and its subsequent loss to the rise of grunge. Nurtured on the fundamentals of punk and underground DIY movements, groups like Nirvana, Green River and Soundgarden championed a new generation of metallic commotion. From the generation of the age, no album was more significant to the transition than Nirvana's Nevermind. Coupled with the fact that the cover portrayed an infant, which continually emphasizes the rebirth aspect of this subgenre's development, the album and its cover art was a symbol of one of the largest shifts in music. It was more significant than the shift from blues to hard rock, or the shift from prog rock to punk. Grunge was a retort to an entire decade of decadence, and signified that genres such as metal and punk had more to offer than makeup and speedy guitar solos. It took the pomposity of decadence into an in-depth retrospective on self and the reality in which we live. Nirvana's entrance into the 90s was a seismic shift in the world of heavy metal, but those who remained fans of the hardcore underground still remained faithful. While grunge overpowered glam metal, the underground support towards thrash metal remained solid and had done so for many years. And outside of the Bay Area, over on the East Coast, it was Big Four contributors Anthrax that brought Thrash to the forefront of that region, especially in New York, particularly when the outfit released the classic album, Among the Living, much earlier in 1987. The third full-length studio release from Anthrax was a significant release in that it solidified the group in the company of what would be later referred to as the Big Four. After shattering the door down into mainstream recognition with the Spreading Disease album and the single Madhouse, it was the 1987 album that would strengthen that basis. Accompanied with tunes such as Caught in a Mosh, I Am the Law, Indians and the title track itself, among the Living is thought to be the seminal and symbolic representation of Anthrax at its best during the 1980s. On the cover, the band sought to combine a wide variety of influences to try and capture the vibe of the album. As a result, their love of horror movies attached itself to the thematic approach of the art. 
designed and brought to life by artist Don Browdingham. The resulting cover would establish a short but fruitful collaborative relationship between the artist and the band. The Old Man on the album cover represents a mashup of several horror antagonists from stories and films such as Poltergeist, The Stand, Phantasm and others. As the art blended with the music, the album arguably became Anthrax's most recognised album during the decade. Likewise, another member of the Big Four would finally find their iconic cover, and for Dave Mustaine and his outfit Megadeth, it came in the form of 1990's Rust in Peace. Many early and current fans may point to 1986's Peace Cells as a seminal album for Dave Mustaine and Dave Ellison. To a degree, they are correct with it being an important step in Megadeth's evolution. However, it was the release that signified their union with drummer Nick Menza and guitarist Marty Friedman that drove them into international recognition, finally. With a progressive approach to their thrash rudiments, the foursome created one of the most successful Megadeth releases to that date rivaling some of the classic thrash releases throughout the 1980s. While the album cover itself represents mainly the tune Hangar 18, Vic Rattlehead brings forth an otherworldly feel with the inclusion of the grey alien in a stasis cylinder of some kind. Is he dead? Is he in suspended animation? And what's with that piece of kryptonite that Rattlehead is holding? Is it to revive or is it to kill? The art developed by Ed Repka was a continuation of his work with Megadeth and another example of the strong thematic approaches with his robust use of colour. It was these approaches that would keep Repka with future opportunities with other bands. The union with Repka on Rust in Peace made for a memorable and historic collaboration that married the art to the music flawlessly. Many years later a new band would enter the metal scene, straggling the alternative scene also and bringing a vigorous progressive element to their sounds. While in the Megadeth example, Mustaine collaborated with Repka on the development of the cover, with alternative band Tool, it would be the guitarist Adam Jones that would deliver the artwork for all of the band's releases. It was to be a unique approach, and it was exemplified by the release of 1996's Animal. 
After grunge drove glam metal away, the thrash movement proceeded forward into adopting both hard rock and groove metal into their sounds. As these developments progressed, newer alternative styles of heavy metal were arising during the early 1990s. For Tool, their efforts were strongly recognized with the songs Sober and Prison Sex from the debut full-length album Undertow. But by 1996, the group had solidified their characteristic sound and style, and nothing was more evident by this than the CD Anima. Coupled with solid music such as 46 and 2, Stinkfist, and the title track, the album also featured some very advanced artwork by Adam Jones. Choosing a unique approach, Jones decided to use lenticular printing to bring his album cover to life. With freaky eyeballs surrounding a square liquid-like portal or something, Jones took the approach seriously as it had mainly been used in novelty toys or prizes and crackerjack boxes and other things like that. I can remember having a lenticular printed ruler in school during the 1984 Olympics depicting athletes running. At that point it was seen as a fun printing technique for kids. Jones shifted that focus completely. The method applies a lenticular lens over the art which provides an illusion of depth and movement. For Tool, the lenticular lens was the transparent face of the jewel case, which when moved up and down and side to side would present the optical illusion that the eyes and the water moved on the cover. The one-of-the-kind merging between album cover art and lenticular printing was an extraordinary move and contributed greatly to the success of the album. It was an astounding harmony between the album cover and the album music, and the approach would later be implemented by bands such as Kiss and Ministry. For Tool, Enema became their seminal release, and arguably their most iconic. In contrast, David Coverdale's Whitesnake, founded in 1978, would have to wait nearly a decade for their seminal release, specifically a nine-year wait, until 1987. I don't know where I'm going, but I sure know where I've been, hanging on the promises. As Coverdale experienced some success with Deep Purple after leaving the early metal band, he moved on to a solo career with an album called Whitesnake. 
The result would evolve into a full-fledged band with the same name as the record. For several years, the group enjoyed some minor success in the United States and they opened for many bands. But before the glam metal scene was ready to die, it was in 1987 in which Whitesnake put out what some consider to be either a self-titled album or untitled album. The ambiguity of this eventually led fans and critics to call the album the year in which it was released, using a title simply called 1987. Directed by A&R giant John Kolodner, the album was produced by Mike Stone and Keith Olsen. Together with band leader Coverdale, Whitesnake took the curious step of re-recording two of their previous songs to include on the album, Here I Go Again and Crying in the Rain. The cover art was created by artist Hugh Syme, who with this release established a new visual image for the glam metal scene and metal scene overall at the time. Taking a Greco-Roman approach, Syme showed the album cover as some kind of marble, limestone, structure or wall upon which the band's logo was displayed. The attention to detail with cracks in the antiquated structure added accents to the design. Syme's effort was to start a new trend that would be mimicked on other releases such as Bon Jovi's New Jersey and Metallica's and Justice For All. Perhaps most importantly about this most recognisable cover is that the album also coincided with two classic music videos that accompanied the single releases from the album. Featuring model Tawny Katane, both music videos for Here I Go Again and Is This Love became so vital to the songs and the album that it pushed Whitesnake to have the most successful few years in their career. It was also the first time that the music videos complementing the release merged with the music and the art. Instead of the cover and the music forming a union that made the album iconic, the cover, the music and the music videos formed some kind of trinity. The unique combination would be looked back on as an extremely memorable time and release in heavy metal history. Although Hugh Syme's efforts would develop a new trend in metal, much later a more extreme outfit would also develop a new trend that would forever influence the look of the death metal subgenre. While Whitesnake's grandiose effort was a huge mainstream success, several years later Cannibal Corpse would slowly rise to success by using another course of action, controversy, by using gore and shock, as depicted on their album, Tomb of the Mutilated.
Forming a creative relationship with artist Vincent Locke, Cannibal Corpse wanted to guarantee that the visuals and how they presented their albums matched the gory horror themes they were exploring musically and lyrically. In retrospect, the collaboration between Locke and Corpse seems like fate. A like-minded horror aficionado, Locke took the work seriously with Cannibal Corpse, delivering gory and horror-themed covers for their first CDs, Eaten Back to Life and Butchered at Birth. But something shifted with the 1992 release of Tomb of the Mutilated. Both in terms of artwork and music, Locke and Corpse raised the stake, deciding to use extreme horror themes to shock and push everything over the top. Up until this point, nobody had heard of such extreme song titles such as I Come Blood, and entrails ripped from a virgin's cunt. Locke's artwork pushed the boundaries further also, depicting two corpses or perhaps mutilated zombies together with one on the floor performing oral sex on the second. The marriage between the artwork and the music would become the defining moment in Cannibal Corpse's career with this album. Consequently, the release would also be viewed with much scrutiny after the inevitable controversies arose. While initial reactions in the US were mainly of public revulsion coming from politicians, Overseas, the reaction was far stricter. In 1996, Australia banned all Cannibal Corpse releases, with police entering many CD shops and confiscating the albums in a Gestapo-like fashion. All of the group's releases were banned in Germany, with further legislation that forbid the death metal outfit to play any of the songs in live shows. In spite of the restrictions in other nations, the early releases of Cannibal Corpse would later be redistributed with alternative covers during the 2000s in many of these nations. Though Cannibal Corpse strove to find controversy to power their career, another metal group would find controversy also, but in this case, with their fans, for a famous 1991 release. A release that some may find contentious for me to include the album cover itself on this type of list, especially when compared to their other album cover art. Despite this, 1991 changed the music scene for the likes of Nirvana and the grunge outfits that followed. For Metallica, it was their 1991 Black Album release that would change their career forever.
Metal fans may find my choice of the Black Album to be a poor choice for this list. However, the concept is to look at the most iconic and recognisable album covers for the bands listed here. And yes, while past and future Metallica records have some amazing album covers, there are several elements about the 1991 self-titled Black Album release that merit its inclusion here. Apart from their explosive success with the album, the Black Album signifies many elements of change in Metallica, their music and their career. Between 1983 and 1990, Metallica's album art was symbolic of the thrash scene of the era. Beginning with the gory elements of Kill 'Em All, the group would move on to some heavily successful album covers as demonstrated by the likes of Master of Puppets and Justice For All, two covers highly respected by fans. Following the Black Album, Metallica's album covers pierced an era of experimentation, from the odd, eccentric and, for some, disgusting result of the Load album cover to the highly divisive Pusshead cover for Saint Anger. In later years, Metallica would find a return to form with their covers, especially with the release of Death Magnetic. The release of the Black Album denoted a shift in sound for Metallica. From 1983 to 1988, they had solidly embraced the extreme harsh speed of thrash metal, emulating their heroes from the Noobum and early black metal movements. But with the 1991 release, the outfit began to embrace other elements of heavy metal, including rudiments of hard rock. Consolidating the sounds with their already hard and tight noise resulted in a shift in direction for the band. The end result would lead them to an explosion of success that would see them tour for over three years in support of this CD alone. Additionally, the release signified the closing of their working relationship with thrash producer Fleming Rasmussen and the commencement of a new one with hard rock producer Bob Rock. But it was the album cover that also set this release apart from other Metallica albums. At the time, it was criticised by fans and ridiculed for its similarities to This Is Spinal Tap. But the minimalism of the work, in spite of there being better instances of minimalism on other albums like ACDC's Back in Black and St. Vitus's Born Too Late, in retrospect, the design reflected a major turning point for Metallica. Grounded on a concept created by the band and Peter Mensch, it was artist Don Bradigan, known for his incredible detail in covers such as Anthrax's Among the Living and Metallica's own Master of Puppets, which brought the cover to light. Including the Gadsden snake on the cover with the band logo faded into the minimal black design had signified an incredible deal of restraint and discipline on the part of Bradigan. His tremendously detailed works on covers with Motley Crue and Metal Church were well known, and this was probably the most minimalist work he had done up until that point. Notwithstanding the criticisms of the time, in addition to the continual and ongoing accusations from former fans of the band selling out, the album has stood the test of time. In combination with it being the most successful release by Metallica, the album cover has most certainly, without doubt, become the most recognisable of all the Metallica releases. And happily, it has enabled new fans to discover the band via this release, and subsequently discover more of their music and more of their amazing album covers. A few years later, as Metallica were investigating their newfound mainstream success, groove metal outfit Pantera would take their place as the underground choice of metal for the era. And while Pantera exploded nationally with their first major label release, Cowboys from Hell, it would be 1992's vulgar display of power that would shoot them into international success.
One outfit partly responsible for the development of groove metal, it was with vulgar display of power that solidified the sound and vibe of both the subgenre and the band Pantera. With the title, the group wanted an album cover that was indicative of a vulgar display of power. After they rejected an initial effort from the record label depicting a boxer on the album cover, photographer and artist Brad Guise would ultimately develop the resulting iconic cover showing a man being punched in the face. Vinnie Paul would later claim that it took 31 punches at 10 bucks a punch paid to the man on the cover to get the perfect shot for the album. However, Guise has denounced this as no more than an urban legend where the man on the cover, named Sean Cross, was never actually hit. In spite of this, the cover art has lasted the test of time and has frequently been parodied using images of famous or infamous individuals being punched in the face, used usually in the form of memes. And like Pantera with vulgar display of power, there are many other groups that form a symbolic bond with their most iconic album covers. One from an earlier time in metal is with Dio, and the band's debut release, the iconic Holy Diver. Don't talk to strangers, cause they're only there to do you harm. Don't ride in starlight, cause the words may come out Following his lengthy career performing with Elf, Rainbow and Black Sabbath, 
Ronnie James Dio's first solo outing would form the basis for his band Dio. Taking the sword and sorcery sway from Rainbow and the religion versus occult elements of Black Sabbath, Ronnie forged a feel and aura to his new band that became not only synonymous with himself and the group, but with metal overall. His efforts have been hailed through the years as a consolidating force for heavy metal, keeping the scene strong, even during periods that may have been considered the lean years. But Dio was always dedicated, and his efforts to strengthen metal are, in my mind, unparalleled. From his efforts to emulate but also enhance on Bob Geldof's model with Live Aid and Band-Aid, Dio created the STARS project in the 1980s to collaborate with other heavy metal artists in support of Aid to Africa. Similarly, in the 2000s, Dio would collaborate frequently with Jack Black and Tenacious D to keep the spirit of metal alive. Whether it be for charity, comedy, or serious collaborations, Ronnie James did what he could to support heavy metal. Dio, can you hear me? I am lost and so alone. I'm asking for your guidance. Won't you come down from your throne? I need a tight compadre who will teach me how to rock. My father thinks you're evil, but man, he can suck a cock. Rock is not the devil's work, it's magical and rad. I'll never rock as long as I am stuck here with my dad. I hear you brave young jables, you are hungry for the rock. But to learn the ancient methods, secret doors, you must unlock. Father's clutches in this oppressive neighborhood. On a journey you must go to find the land of Hollywood. In the city of fallen angels, where the ocean meets the sand, you will form a strong alliance and the world's most awesome brand. To find your fame and fortune through the valley you must walk. And while Ozzy Osbourne's era of Black Sabbath may have created heavy metal, it was Dio's era that defined it. Thus it was to be with 1980's Holy Diver. During the time, however, it was simply regarded as just another heavy metal album and the fans welcomed its success. However, its release has become tantamount with the aura surrounding Ronnie James Dio and his dedication to the heavy metal scene. The album cover, developed by Wendy Dio and rendered by Gene Hunter, portrayed the new mascot for Dio's band, a gigantic demon that has since been dubbed Murray. With the classic and iconic image of Murray swinging a chain towards a captive and drowning priest that is very recognisable, of major significance on the cover is that Murray's left hand shows the metal horns, the symbolic hand gesture that Ronnie James Dio is largely credited with creating. 
one of the things Ronnie is known for is inventing the devil horns, the most enduring symbol of heavy metal culture. I'm of Italian extraction, and uh, my grandmother and my grandfather on both sides, of both my mother's and father's side, came to America uh, from Italy, and they had superstitions. And I would always see my grandmother when I was a little kid, you know, with her holding my hand and walking down the street. She would see someone and go, what's that? And eventually learned that it was called the Maloik. And the Maloik was, someone's giving us the evil eye, so she's giving it protection against the evil eye. Or you can give someone the evil eye too. So invent it, no, but perfect it and make it important, yes, because I did it so much, especially within the confines of that great band, Sabbath, which had this incredible name already, and you put that together with uh, what people think it is. But for me, because I'm lucky enough to have kind of uh, just have done it so much, it's been more equated with me than anyone else. Although Gene Simmons will tell you that he invented it, but then again, Gene invented breathing and shoes and everything, you know. DA's first release has evolved into a classic. Though the art marries well with the music, it is truly Ronnie James's legacy that has helped this album to become deemed as one of the best of all time. And just like his time in Black Sabbath also, the work he conducted with them was always regarded as classic. But speaking of Sabbath, we cannot walk past them in an episode such as this. As the undisputed creators of heavy metal, Black Sabbath was bound to be integrated into this episode. And what better example can we examine than the group's debut self-titled release from the Ozzy Osbourne era of the outfit? Sabbath's first self-titled album is in this list simply because it is generally agreed among metalheads that this was the first band and the first album to openly demonstrate the sound and atmosphere of what would become known as heavy metal. With classics such as the title track, The Wizard and NIB, the debut release from Black Sabbath would have an instantaneous impact on the blues rock and hard rock scene of the era. The Black Sabbath album cover depicts the Maple Durham Watermill located on the River Thames in Oxfordshire, England. Upright in front of the watermill is a female figure dressed in black. The photograph was taken by Marcus Keefe. 
The name of the woman pictured on the front cover is forgotten, however Tony Iommi stated that she once showed up backstage at a Black Sabbath show and introduced herself. Aside from this, very little is known of the ghostly woman used on the album art with the exception that she was an actress and model hired for the photo shoot. Her name is, allegedly, Louise. Knotted with the dark and supernatural elements of the band's lyrics, an inner gatefold of the original release was designed by Keith McMillan and featured an inverted crucifix with a poem written inside of it. The presence of the artwork both on the front and in the gatefold fueled the occult imagery associated with the band that, in turn, pushed forward their success. The group was initially hesitant of this development and at first tried to fight it. However, regardless of the band's best efforts, the occultist side of the lyrics lay bare a path forward into realms associated with horror and Satanism and the occult. The association would not only persist to be associated with Black Sabbath, but with heavy metal overall, and was an association that would be exploited by artists in both the realms of shock rock and death metal. Equally, with Black Sabbath's success came the achievements of another group they had a connection with, Ronnie James Dio would later step into Ozzy Osbourne's shoes, but before this, he would represent the vocals for Richie Blackmore's post-deep purple outfit known as Rainbow. The second release from Richie Blackmore's Rainbow was a consolidation of the work the group had set out to accomplish on their debut album. With their sophomore effort, the group was beginning to move away from the Deep Purple influences and moving into something else entirely that would eventually evolve into power metal. With Ronnie James Dio enduring as vocalist for the group and Richie Blackmore's signature guitar style, Rainbow Rising saw the band maturing in a direction that was unique to their musical identity. Also, as far as the artwork was concerned, the album cover was painted by Ken Kelly before he got the gig to paint Kiss's iconic Destroyer album cover. For Kelly, it was a course that was forming a foundation to continue working with other artists down the line, such as Man War, Burning Star, Coheating Cambria, and Ace Frehley. The album art depicts a godlike fist reaching out from the skies to grasp a rising rainbow. The impact of the release was revolutionary to the future development of how metal albums would be presented. 
Kelly's later work with Kiss on the album's Destroyer and Love Gun would consolidate that even further. While Rainbows and Ken Kelly's efforts drove inspiration to many metal groups in the future, over in the UK, Lemmy Kilmister and his new outfit Motorhead took a different direction. For their 1980 release Ace of Spades, the band opted away from painted art and instead went for photography. <laughs> Chesterman on their first few records, for the 1980 epic Ace of Spades, the band opted to shift making a photographed album cover as opposed to the paintings on previous albums. As seen in the classic albums documentary on the record, the band members explained the idea began shortly after they had settled on the title of the release. I think I suggested it, like, why don't we try doing it in a, have the album sleeve like in sepia, sort of brown and white, you know, and we can be gunfighters, you know, and the card table with the dead man's hand or whatever, and we thought about that, thought, nah. And then thought about, well, how about just dressing up as cowboys, you know? And I remember Eddie saying, oh, I want to I be Clint Eastwood. I want to wear a poncho. Phil had this thing about Marlon Brando and one-eyed jacks. I think Lemmy was, although he never admitted it, but he always, I, I always thought he was dressed as Maverick. Our manager had been talking about, well, well, boys, it looks like you'll be going to America next year or whatever. Oh, really? Oh, great. Hey, Doug, my manager said, Doug, why, can't, why don't you fly us out to, like, the desert somewhere? And let's do the album shot. To do that, we'll have to go to America, won't we? We'll have to find a desert, won't we? No, Phil, no, we won't, actually, because uh, he knew somebody in High Wycombe who lived near a sandstone quarry. And this picture on the front of the Ace of Spades album, it looked more like a Texas rock band than a UK rock band. This was actually photographed in a sandstone quarry in Barnet, just outside London, believe it or not, and that sky is real. <laughs> the sky was actually airbrushed in, I believe, because it was just very grey and cloudy on that day. And of course, for forevermore, everybody says, wow, man, where did you do that? Yeah. And of course, when you say Barnet, people fall about laughing. We couldn't go wrong that year. I think we were on every pole and every music paper. I only got beat to the sex idol top by David Coverdale. 
Six idle, you know. Wrong guy. Alan Ballard was responsible for the photography used in the album cover. As time would progress after the release of Ace of Spades, the years of 1980 and 1981 became of monumental success for Lemmy and Motorhead. Their solid metallic sound and hard-hitting rock and roll stylings began attracting audiences that were made of more than just metalheads. For many, with Ace of Spades, Motorhead began overlapping across the borders of various subgenres. At the time, they were embraced by classic rock fans, metalheads, punk fans, fans of the newer hardcore scene that was evolving, and much more. Later, fans and bands from the likes of thrash, speed metal, death metal, and even glam metal would list Motorhead among their biggest inspirations. And one such glam band that was also inspired by Motorhead were sleaze rockers Motley Crue, arising in Los Angeles during the very early 1980s. Merging their love of hard rock such as Kiss or Cheap Trick with their harder-edged influence of punk, Crue established a glam metal sound that would establish the tone of the subgenre. And for them, their first major success came with 1982's Shout at the Devil. <laughs> Their second release, Shout at the Devil, would be the album that would bring Motley Crue to international attention. With songs such as Looks That Kill, Too Young to Fall in Love and the title track, the record was a sonic punch to fans of the scene at the time. Image-wise, Crue were still developing their glam image with it being a continuous evolution throughout their career. Following the leather and lipstick route from their debut release, Motley Crue changed into somewhat of a Motley Pocalypse appearance embracing more leather and tougher imagery that was somewhat more evocative of a Mad Max movie. Other groups were adopting this sound and style simultaneously, such as Wasp and Wendy O. Williams in The Plasmatics. 
Combining the imagery with the songs, the approach for the album cover art was to take a minimalist approach, just like ACDC with Back in Black and Metallica with the Black Album. Additionally, bassist Nikki Six was conscious that raising controversy could raise the profile of the band. While Venom's black metal may be recognisable to metal fans, its potential controversy encircling the album cover missed the mainstream in the US and was more restricted to reactions in the UK during the band's early days. Working with artist Bob Defren, the group simplified the Venom iconography by eliminating the Baphomet figure and opting for a simple inverted pentagram. During the decade of the satanic panic, it was the perfect time for crew to stoke the fires of controversy. Even though by modern standards it tamed compared to the likes of Cannibal Corpse, at the time of its release it was a huge controversy. The album was considered by many to be an undesirable influence on children and teenagers. But whatever the case, it landed Motley Crue on the map, and as it is so common across many of these album cover examples we have discussed during this episode. While many lent heavily on controversy or even minimalism, the true achievement of the artistic approach is when the art matches the music perfectly. And while you may agree with some of the albums listed on this episode or disagree, it's my belief and contention that these 20 releases have the most recognizable and iconic album cover art throughout the history of heavy metal. And now it's time for a prehistoric mosh. Progressive rock has always held a peculiar sway and influence on metal and sometimes this influence manifests itself as the advent of interesting album art. In 1973, prog outfit Emerson, Lake & Palmer released their studio album Brain Salad Surgery. Mainly regarded as a classic among prog aficionados, the album features album cover art from the enigmatic H.R. Geiger. The artist is more well known for his graphic and disturbing designs for the Xenomorphs and many other essentials from the Aliens film series. While Geiger had worked on album covers before, the gig with Emerson, Lake & Palmer was a major boost up to his career. Aside from his success with the Alien film series, Geiger would also move on to do album covers for the likes of Celtic Frost, Steve Stevens, Carcass and Danzig. Nonetheless, for Geiger, it was through Emerson, Lake & Palmer that he landed his career in album cover art. From the 1973 concept album, here is ELP with the song Still You Turn Me On. Let's take a listen. Lying in my bed, wanna 
Now, let's have a look at this week in Metal News. Guitar expert Buckethead has revealed in a recent interview that he has a potentially fatal heart condition. The musician explained that his heart beats out of rhythm occasionally, with one incident in which a doctor told him he was on the verge of having a stroke, and another anecdote in which he explains when the symptoms occur it can even be difficult to walk across the room. Buckethead, remaining positive as always, stated, I could be gone tomorrow. Anybody could be gone, but that's a heavy experience. I want to play right now, and I want to play that experience. Cinderella musician Tom Kiefer recently collapsed prior to a solo concert in Western Pennsylvania. Doctors confirmed that he is in stable condition and deemed the episode indicates heat exhaustion and severe dehydration. Kiefer intends to return to his performance schedule very soon. All four members of Decapitated have officially been charged with rape. They were detained in California and held on allegations of kidnapping and were later accused of gang raping a woman following a gig in Washington State in August. The musicians Wacklaw Keltika and Michael Lesesko made their appearance in court where Superior Court Judge Annette Plays set bail for each man at $100,000, ordered them to surrender their passports to their attorneys, and the judge also prohibited any further communication between the men. The case continues to unfold. Judas Priest, Bon Jovi, MC5 and Rage Against the Machine are amongst the 19 artists newly nominated for potential induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Announcements of the winners will happen in December and inductions scheduled for next April at a ceremony in Ohio. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame will once again offer fans to participate in the induction selection procedure. Between now and December 5th, 2017, fans can visit rockhall.com vote to vote for the musicians they believe to be the most deserving of induction. The top five artists as elected by the public will comprise a fans ballot that will be tallied along with other ballots to select the 2018 inductees. Fans will need to log in with a Facebook account or email to participate. Rob Flynn of Machine Head recently stated that he is considering retiring the song Davidian following the Las Vegas attacks in early October. Featuring the line, Let Freedom Ring with a Shotgun Blast, Flynn voiced his grief and anger over the tragedy during a live stream interview in which he stated, I even texted it to the dudes like, I don't want to ever play Davidian again. It is unclear at this point whether Flynn will stick to his guns, pardon the pun, or whether this is simply an expression of disbelief and grief after the shooting. The terror attack occurred on the night of October the 1st, perpetuated by gunman Stephen Paddock. Over 500 people were injured and 58 killed. Classic death metalers Morbid Angel have put out a new song along with the announcement of an upcoming album. Entitled Piles of Little Arms, the song is also on their new release Kingdoms Disdained that will be out December 1st and will be the band's first with ex-Abysmal Dawn drummer Scott Fuller and Vadim Von guitarist Dan Vadim Von. Though recovering from his injuries from on stage recently, Marilyn Manson has put out a new music video for the song Satan, spelled S-A-Y-1-0, from his latest release, Heaven Upside Down. The Not Safe For Work video also stars Johnny Depp with creepy allusions to well-known horror movies, along with lots of sexually explicit content. The video is available for streaming at YouTube. 
Finland's Omnium Gatherum have just put out a brand new single, Blade Reflections, now accessible on all streaming and download services. The song will be on a limited edition Omnium Gatherum Skullmold split 7-inch vinyl release, and that will be available on the forthcoming Arctic Circle Alliance European Tour. You can stream the lyric music video for Blade Reflections over at YouTube. Belfagor, Cryptopsy and Hate announced they are taking on a North American tour beginning in November. The death metal groups will begin at the Gramercy Theatre in New York City on November 6, with the current schedule ending in Canada in December. And finally, in the never-ending quest for gilded comedic fodder on the internet, Metalsucks.net recently stumbled across two music videos that could perhaps be the worst metal videos ever made. Credited to band Wally World in California, the main video highlighted at the site features a very poorly produced sequence on a beach. According to Metal Sucks, best part, and by best I mean creepiest, is that apparently the poor woman dancing around, occasionally sort of not really, in a bikini is the singer's niece. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. Let's raise some ruckus, baby. What do you say? Let's raise some hell. Let's raise some hell. I say let's raise some ruckus. No, I say let's raise some cane. Let's raise some cane! See the videos over at Metal Sucks, and we have the link for it in our show notes. It may inspire you to also Google the works of Jan Terry or Mark Gormley. You'll either thank me for that or hate me for it. Links to the new stories can be found in our show notes over at heavymetal666.com. If you come across any big metal news, please share it with us over at reddit.com slash r slash metal news. On the next Heavy Metal Historian, we commence a new examination into metal subgenres and enter the late 1990s to explore the genre that has been the most divisive among fans, new metal. Ascending from the influences of groove metal, the scene adopted many influences across the board. With bold fusion attempts that attracted a new generation of metal fans, the labors also alienated traditional metal fans who initially, and some still say, that the subgenre is just not metal. As we take an all-inclusive perspective on the show, we will be looking into how the styles of thrash metal, groove metal, alternative rock, punk, rap, hip-hop, electronica, industrial, and even reggae laid the underpinnings for the scene to emerge. We explore the stylistic origins of new metal. Subscribe to Heavy Metal Historian at iTunes or Stitcher, like us on Facebook, or follow us at Metal Podcast 666 on Twitter and on Tumblr. 
email us at metalpodcast666 at gmail.com if there are subjects you'd like heavy metal historian to investigate or recount or if you have any questions you would like for us to answer on a future show. We'll catch you on the next heavy metal historian, Hales and Horns. And until next time, one of the elements we explored with regards to the impact of album cover art was how it influenced fans to pick up and buy albums without hearing a single note and rather being awestruck enough to buy the album based on the art alone. We've heard many stories of this, from the presentation of Eddie on the first Iron Maiden album, and many of the thrash groups throughout the 1980s. But for me, the first album that got me into heavy metal, my gateway into the genre if you will, was Kiss's 1987 album, Crazy Nights. I can recall seeing the album cover on cassette back in those days, and being enthralled with the artistry behind the photography and graphic design. The album depicts broken glass, or perhaps a broken mirror, where distorted and non-distorted photographs of the musicians appear in the glass as reflections. The album was my introduction to the band KISS well after they removed their makeup. This release in turn would guide me to find such albums as Iron Maiden's Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, Motley Crue's Girls, 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 and eventually Metallica's And Justice For All. As I stated on many episodes in the past, I've always felt it important not to criticize outfits from genres such as new metal or glam metal or kawaii metal or whatever subgenre you find to be non-metal. Because for many, exposure to those styles could very well be a new gateway for new fans to discover other forms of metal and to become part of the always ever-growing heavy metal community. For me, my moment was Kiss. Crazy Nights made me a Kiss fan and a metalhead. And had I not bought that cassette based on the album cover art alone, I might be in a very different place right now. From the 1987 release, here is the heavier tune from the album No No No, sung by Gene Simmons and opened with an exceptional solo intro from guitarist Bruce Kulick.
Heavy Metal Historian is a non-profit podcast produced and presented for educational purposes. All music and clips are copyright to their respective owners and are used in the podcast under fair use guidelines. No advertising is presented in the podcast or displayed at its home website, heavymetal666.com. If you hear this podcast and find it has advertising injected into it by a podcast service, please consider listening directly at heavymetal666.com. All items presented are done so out of love for the heavy metal genre. It is a show put together by a single metalhead for all metalheads everywhere. No money is made in the production of Heavy Metal Historian. Donations are also not accepted. Instead, we request you go out and buy some metal albums. Or even better, support unsigned metal bands at sites like bandcamp.com or support your local music scene. It all starts in your hometown. especially with their album, Don't Break the Oath. (laughs) 